Well, I got to tell you, it might be the, the last edition of the show before the show podcast because Sam and I, now international celebrities, after this podcast was plugged on national television last night. International television. Let's just tell ourselves it went to Canada and Mexico. It was on the internet. It was on the internet. We put it on the internet. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, we were we were touted as newsmakers and um, the stars of tomorrow Both on the commercial. Both of those Definitely were just were about us. Talking about the actual no. minor leaguers in which we interviewed, uh, they were talking about us. We are the makers of news. Yep. The newsmakers and we're the, the newsmakers and the stars of tomorrow. As the commercial for MILB.com told you last night, I don't see what there is to refute about that. No, no, we're just said facts. Sam Dykstra and Tyler Mon, newsmakers and stars of tomorrow. That was the whole commercial, basically, as I remember. Get new business cards. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's just get those printed up. Somebody sent us business cards. Hi, hi, everybody. Welcome in. It's episode number 77 of the show before the show podcast, which, yes, you may have seen featured in that sweet 30 second spot for MILB.com last night during the AAA National Championship game in memphis tennessee we're gonna to get to talking about that here in just a couple of moments with our our best pal i'll go ahead and say it our best pal kelsey hennigan uh who has joined us from memphis uh well from the triple a national championship game i should say in years past last season today she'll be in studio which is even more exciting uh for all of us but before we get to all that hey the show before the show podcast is on itunes we're on the stitcher app now as well find us there you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription and you can also email the podcast podcast at milb.com over the last couple of weeks uh we've been told that we hate the brewers and that we're members of the hypocritical media for not thinking that tim tebow will be successful so the email inbox is working beautifully i love it yeah and actually it's a good thing you talk about the email uh just because since we are entering the off season now we're totally open to topics uh people have talked Absolutely. about we should do like a butterfly effect episode. I'm definitely down for that. Talking about, you know, what had happened if a prospect had gotten promoted or if a prospect hadn't been traded, something like that. So we'll definitely have something like that coming up. Uh, we'll always do our AFL mock draft, that kind of stuff. We'll, yeah. have, we'll have some fun stuff. But if there's things people want us to talk about on the podcast in this offseason, we're definitely all ears and uh, I guess all email inbox. One caveat, uh, not Tim Tebow. But aside from that, we will take your suggestions. Podcast at milb.com. I'm just playing the role of heel. I think I've 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 played it so well to this point unwittingly, and I'll just play it um, full on. Uh, so hey, but yeah, you can get in touch with this podcast at milb.com. Also, Sam's on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykes or milb, and I am at Tyler Mon. And again, give us a rating and a review and a subscription and all that kind of good stuff on uh, on the old podcasting sites wherever you find your favorite shows. We are there, and we will be here all offseason as well. We don't go away for the offseason. You know why? Because there is no offseason. This week, World Baseball Classic qualifiers in Brooklyn. Starting in the next couple of weeks, the Arizona Fall League gets rolling. Um, prospects could make contributions in the postseason in the World Series. Last year, we saw Raul Mondesi, the top prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization, make his Major League debut in the World Series. So we don't go away just because the minor league season has ended. But with that, the minor league season has ended and we get set for strike one in this week's edition of uh, three strikes for episode number 77. And we do welcome in Kelsey Hennigan, who is fresh off of her return from AutoZone Park in Memphis, Tennessee. 
and the AAA National Championship game that saw the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders take down the El Paso Chihuahuas 3-1 to and a really, really good matchup uh, last night. We're recording on Wednesday, Tuesday night. Really good matchup between those two teams in Memphis. Seems like a good crowd. Kelsey, welcome. Tell us about uh, tell us about last night in Memphis. Hey, Tyler. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Not yeah. as exciting as it was for you last night, but uh, yeah. I got, got a chance to watch it. A fun matchup between those two teams. It was. You know, everyone kept talking about it was going to be pitching versus hitting, and that's what it was for the most part. Um, but the pitching came out on top as expected. Yeah, so kind of get into that a little bit. Um, you know, the Scranton Wilkes-Barre obviously came away with a win, 3-1. Uh, Chris Parmalee got the three-run homer there in the first, and that ended up being all they needed for the rest of the game. I know you got to talk to Parmalee a little bit, uh, but what, what was your sense, you know, not only from that, but from the pitching performance from Jordan Montgomery. I know he was a guy we were all looking at. He was coming off a pretty strong season for Scranton Wilkes-Barre. Um, how was that combination able to get, you know, the the Rail Riders a Triple A title last night? Yeah, so Montgomery had a pretty good start to um, start the playoffs for the Rail Riders, and then it was a little shaky to start uh, Game One of the Governors Cup Finals. But he bounced back very easily and without much problem uh, in this Triple A National Championship game. And the entire team knew that he was going to do it. And then they added Phil Coke to the bullpen, which he's been pretty dominant for um, Scranton this year. And so that was pretty much unstoppable lockdown by the pitching staff. So once Parmley came up in the first after uh, Peyton and Frazier came on, there was he just hit that home run. He wasn't sure if it was fair or foul. Ended up landing in a grassy Burmy area, which is classic to Miley Ballpark. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that was all they needed. So that was it. This uh, this matchup is so unique across the minors because we don't have any of these other cross league championship finishes, um, and it's cool because I mean these are players who have played against each other and with each other at various stages in their careers. You know whether it was the, when they were amateurs or coming up through the minors um, and that kind of stuff. But when they see each other in the AAA National Championship game, it's almost a very small. Um, little example of the way Major League Baseball used to be where it's two entirely different sides of the game that play on this one big stage in the final chapter. But you get to come across some really neat storylines, too, in guys that, you know, have seen each other uh, before and, you know, in various stages. Uh, for example, Clint Frazier and Hunter Renfro were both first rounders uh, in 2013. They were on opposite sides last night. You also had a good anecdote about Clint Frazier and Phil Coke. Clint Frazier calls Phil Coke dad in the clubhouse, which Phil Coke being old enough for a player to call him dad makes me feel ancient. Um, but that's one of the really cool things about this event. Yeah, and uh, like Pete Cosma of former Cardinal greats, and now he's on the and he came back to Memphis, and he probably got the one of the biggest ovations because he played in Memphis when he was first coming up. And then Hunter Renfro was from Mississippi. He went to Mississippi State, so he also had a lot of people. And Hunter realized that um, his first AAA game last year was in Memphis, and he, he was talking to me about it, and he's just like, I tweet about this, you probably know, but he, so he's just like, yeah, and this could be my final AAA game too. And then, of course, a few hours later, he was called up, so it could be. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to touch on that a little bit. How much did it feel like, you know, today, or well, at, late last night after the game was over, you know, El Paso loses, they get a pretty good consolation prize in that Margot, uh, Carlos Asuaje, Austin Hedges, Hunter Renfro, two left-handers going up to uh, San Diego. Did you get the sense, you know, maybe on media day on Monday or whatever, that they knew that this was going to be their last game, or did it feel like it might have been a little bit of a surprise for them? Um, 
I think it was probably a combination. I mean, they those guys have all been doing really well right now. They've been the big reason why uh, El Paso led the PCL in home runs and most a lot of the offensive categories. So I think that it was kind of like they were due, but at the same time, you know, those type of things you never can assume. And you never want to be like, well, it's my time. My El Paso games are over, so let's go up. So I think it was kind of a combination. Kelsey, tell us a little bit the that El Paso dynamic for the last few seasons, you know, with the, the new ballpark and the way the fans have embraced that team and a lot of the talent that's come through there. It's been really fun to watch that organization grow, and they seem to have really found themselves a winner in the in the managerial position for that team in Rod Barajas and a guy who I got a chance to talk to after the Chihuahuas won the PCL. Uh, they move on and play in the, the national championship game, and you got to profile him as a, you know, a former major leaguer who is now in this position, and just how much his players and that team really love him what was that like getting a chance to kind of learn about the next stage of Rod Barajas's career yeah that was pretty cool especially because I mean obviously they say catchers make the best managers and that was pretty true especially with Rod Barajas everyone you talk to from Austin Hedges to Al Perduque of uh, Scranton their manager who coached Rod Barajas when he was in the minors at one point um, they all talk about how he does carry that bit of you know being able to manage a game, manage a team, to becoming a manager. Um, and I was just watching the lineups, you know, that's a national game, it's a big game, so they do the entire roster lineup on the foul line. Uh, and you could, I was just watching Rod, and he could tell that there wasn't enough room for all of his players to line up, like, with the trainers and with all the coaches. So he just kept kind of, like, gesturing them to move. And, like, and it was just kind of cool to see him standing near home plate using his hands to signal his players and tell them what to do because he could see from his point of view that it was kind of off. So it was, it was kind of cool seeing that. Um, but, yeah, Rod's pretty cool. Uh, he was pretty friendly. Uh, he has a good handle on things there. And it, particularly, like, with Austin Hedges, um, you know, I know he was a guy that coming off a year, I think he hit, like, 148 last year for the Padres, gets sent back to El Paso, has kind of a, I won't say it's a breakout year because he's lost his prospect eligibility. There's no real breaking out there, but ends up being a PCL all-star. Uh, what In your conversations with him this week, what did he say about working with Rod Barajas, you know, now a second time? Um, what, what kind of lessons had he kind of gleaned from him? He said he really talked about uh, game management as more than just pitch calling and uh, managing the running game. He really emphasized, Rod really emphasized that as a catcher, you have the ability to be a key position or key player from both sides of the plate. And so I think uh, Hedges really took that to like heart that he could really, you know, hit a bunch of home runs. He was second on the team and he could also get, throw some runners out and control his pitchers. Kelsey, the, the El Paso Chihuahua was a good story and a talent-laden team. And a lot of those guys get a call to the major leagues yesterday. But the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, a team that is almost surprising in that they made it through the postseason in the International League, they make it onto the National Championship game and win because of just how much talent they lost um, in the late stages of the regular season. But Gary Sanchez is gone, Aaron Judge is gone, Tyler Austin, these big names that have already broken onto the scene in such a huge way at the major league level and really, I think, gotten people extremely excited 
in a very different way than they're used to as Yankees fans for the future. What was the sense? Uh, did you get a sense around the Rail Riders and what that team feels like in terms of you know how much talent they've already been able to contribute to the major league level and just what it feels like being in that organization right now that's reshaping it in such a you know quote unquote non Yankee way over the last fifteen years now to see them building from within like this? Yeah, they definitely seem excited about it. You know they. They did touch upon that they lost a lot of big guys, like uh, they even, you know, Camel got traded after being the IL player or MVP, and Solano got called up right before the championship game. So they definitely talked about how they had all these holes, but then also at the same time, all these guys from Trenton came up, all these guys like Parmalee, who had been there the whole time, and Pete Cosmo really stepped up, and uh, even Nestor Cortez made a spot start from Tampa. So they were really proud about how seamlessly they were able to fill those holes with just more guys from their own system. And uh, one more before we let you go here. I know you've got a story coming up, I think, maybe next week on Clint Frazier. Uh, don't want you giving away the full story, obviously, but what can you kind of tease us out about about that coming up next year, uh, next week about the, the new Yankees' top prospect? Well, obviously, Clint didn't exactly perform as well as everyone hoped right out of the gate, right after being traded. Uh, and he felt a lot of pressure. He admitted that. So I talked to him a little bit about how he dealt with that pressure and when it finally clicked and what's the next step for him. Kelsey Hannigan is on Twitter and you can find all of her uh, stuff from the AAA National Championship game at MILB.com. Kelsey's on Twitter at Kelsey, K-E-L-S-I-E underscore Hennigan, H-E-N-E-G-H-A-N. And uh, you can tweet at her. You can tweet her your cool offseason ideas as well. It's not just uh, for us in the show. You want some stuff and you feel like uh, Kelsey's, you know, better than the weirdos like me that write about the random old football players for MILB.com that go that route. Seems like a smart plan. Kelsey, good work as always. Thank you. Oh, yeah. One last thing. I yeah. Last night I was talking to some of the front office guys with Scranton, and they said that after the Real Riders won the Governor's Cup, they were FaceTiming with Ben Gamble, who was traded to the Mariners, and they were talking on the phone with Nick Swisher, who started the year there, or was there for part of the year. So it was kind of cool that, that these is guys cool. who have even left are still a part of the celebration. That is really cool, and that is a uh, that's a team that is one of the most unique identities in 2016 of the minors, with just all of the names, all of the talent, all of the the hype that has passed through that roster, and it's going to be a jumping off point for a lot of really good talent from uh, the minor leagues of the Bronx in years to come. And uh, Kelsey, bringing you all the best stories from the AAA National Championship game at AutoZone Park in Memphis. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Sam. All right, moving on. Strike two this week uh, wasn't just the AAA postseasons that came to a close, uh, but all across minor league baseball, we saw champions crowned at every level. Everybody is wrapped up now. We move on. The Arizona Fall League comes up next uh, as far as the minor league calendar goes for prospects stateside. And, uh, but a whole lot of champions crowned. Sam, who stood out for you? We'll talk a little bit uh, in a while about a kind of a strange little coincidence with a minor league team that won a championship and just a few days later changed affiliations, the Jackson Generals. Um, but they were a very impressive team. Tyler O'Neill and his breakout performance uh, in the playoffs, obviously very impressive. The Midwest League final was a really, really interesting wrap-up, a game that was insane on uh, on Sunday. 
in which the Great Lakes Loons captured a Midwest League title after one of the wackiest back-and-forth seesaw types of games all season. Um, the Midland Rockhounds three-peated. That's a team that we haven't seen, uh, or a feat that we haven't seen in the Texas League since 1920 to 1925 when Fort Worth accomplished uh, three straight Texas League crowns in that span. Um, obviously not in all the years of that span because it's six years, but still, Sam, you get what I'm saying. Who stood out to you among these other title winners? Yeah, no, there's one that I really want to point out and give a shout out to, which is the High Desert Mavericks uh, getting a Cal League championship in their you know final season of existence. It was really neat to watch the final out of that. Uh, it wasn't on Mill TV, but it was all over social media of just the crowd going crazy, uh, team going crazy. We see a lot of that. You know, the, the it's a championship season, so you know there's going to be 14 domestic. Uh, teams that are crown champions in the various leagues and you're always going to see guys going crazy but there's a little special something to go along with the, the Mavs going out on top like that uh, but what was really special for me beyond that just another layer uh, beyond that was game two of the Cal League finals in Visalia uh, the Mavericks start Brett Martin who went on to strike out 15 batters in seven no-hit innings and uh, that was easily one of the best pitching performances I think we've seen all year. And to yeah. see that in that scenario, uh, you know, it wasn't a clinching game. It's a best of five. So, you know, the Mavs actually swept, they won all three games. This was game two. Um, so not quite, you know, the, the clincher, it would have been a heck of a way to go if that was the, the case. But uh, yeah, 15 strikeouts, no hits allowed, only one walk. It ended up being a one hitter. The Mavs actually won one nothing, so they needed to start like that out of Martin. Uh, that's just the stuff that kind of legends are kind of made on. And I, I can only imagine what it was like for him uh, to have his season end on that note. You know, he's a starting pitcher. He didn't go in game three. So the last thing he did on the mound was toss seven no-hit innings, hit 15 strikeouts. That is amazing to me. Uh, and that, you know, puts Martin on my map. He's already a Rangers prospect, uh, pretty well-regarded one at that. But, you know, that's something that he's going to carry into the offseason. A lot of other people are going to carry into the offseason thinking, what is this guy capable of going forward? Is this something? Is it an outlier? If it is an outlier, outlier, it is a heck of a one coming in the playoffs. Uh, And kind of sticking on that topic of left-handed pitching, this time in a clinching game, uh, Max Fried, a guy who this is his first full season actually playing in the Braves system, uh, he was traded back in the offseason between 2014-2015 to the Padres, sought out all of last year because of Tommy John surgery, uh, came back this year, pitched only in Rome, uh, another full year at Class A ball. And he took the ball in Game 4 for the Rome Braves, looking to beat out the Lakewood Blue Claws in the South Atlantic League. He ends up getting that win, uh, his second of the playoffs. But he, too, struck out 13 batters only allowed one run on four hits and three walks in seven innings. Uh, Freed's a guy who was, he was really well regarded when he was in the Padres system. He was a top 100 prospect. A lot of questions about you know, how he would handle coming off of surgery. As much as we talk now about Tommy John and how uh, much easier it is to come off a surgery like that than it was in years past, uh, how guys you know, bounce back much better than they did. Uh, it's still an open question with a guy like Freed with that much time off. This is a guy who hadn't pitched since middle of 2014, late 2014. Uh, so for him to put that exclamation point on the end of that first full season uh, with Rome and in the Brave system, 
uh, was quite spectacular. And that that Rome rotation was just absolutely sick. Uh, prospects all up and down that. You had Mike Soraka, Colby Allard, Max Freed, Tuki Toussaint. Um, just lots of talent in that team. Uh, I, I got to write up for Toolshed this week. You know, just a basic players of the postseason, not necessarily MVPs, um, but just who performed the best. And I noted when I did the South Atlantic League, if I could give it to the whole staff, I would. I gave it to Freed for that performance in that game four clincher. Uh, but that that Rome Braves rotation is something to get really excited for. And if you're looking at that team that's going to be in Kissimmee, Florida next year, a lot of those guys are going to be carrying on to that Florida State team. That, and that's the first time that team is going to, A, be playing in that stadium, and B, uh, as a Braves affiliate. So the, a lot of excitement going forward on that, you know, a team that's carrying a championship from Rome, moving up a level. Um, so those are the two I kind of stuck to. I, I really liked what you were talking about, though, with Great Lakes in that final game and and Jackson, who's changing affiliates. So what, what kind of stuck out to you? Yeah, uh, well, this is kind of an under-the-radar one that probably not many people heard uh, about, but it's similar to, uh, to the story that you told from the California League. We talked a lot coming into the season and throughout the season about the sort of lack of top-end talent in the Los Angeles Angels organization. But the rookie-level Orem Owls came out league champions in the Pioneer League, and they got a dominant pitching performance to start that Pioneer League Championship Series matchup with Billings from a right-hander named Sam Pastroni, who is probably not a player that a lot of people have heard of. He was a 17th-round selection out of Arborview High School in Las Vegas. Uh, He's still just 19 years old. He was a 17th-round pick in 2015. But this year, Hadn't really been a good one for Pastroni. Three and five, a 6.00 ERA and 14 outings in the regular season. Um, But then he goes to the playoffs. Playoffs? I just went very Jim Mora there uh, for a second. But uh, Sam goes to the playoffs and turns in six perfect innings, struck out seven, longest start of his professional career, didn't have a long leash in terms of his pitch count, only threw 62 pitches over those six innings, 46 of them for strikes. And again, Similarly to what you're talking about, Sam, to be able to finish your season on a note like that is so, so cool. And especially for a guy who had struggled all season, you never know which way a career is going to pan out. Um, if if the worst thing that happens to you is that you get to look back one day and say, yeah, and then I won a ring in the Pioneer League and I got my team started by throwing a perfect game through six innings before I had to be lifted because of a pitch count um, you know, during the, the postseason in my age 19 campaign, that's pretty damn cool. Uh, so congratulations to Sam Pastroni and congratulations to the Orem Owls who win a championship in a year where – Really, industry-wide, people have talked about just how down the Angels' system is. It doesn't necessarily translate in wins and losses on the field. Yes, maybe the talent level doesn't seem to be what it is across other organizations, especially in that division, but teams are still able to win. Teams are still able to put together successful campaigns, and that's you know that ever-winding conversation, winning versus development, the balance of that, how you put all that together in a minor league organization. Still pretty cool for these guys in Orem and still pretty cool for the Angels as an organization to get a ring out of that team. Yeah, definitely. And it, I, I almost feel like that's the place where you want to start winning championships. I mean, yeah. you want to win championships anywhere. Like, you know, we talk about with the El Paso, I'm sure, uh, and Scranton. You know, I'm sure the Yankees and Padres are both happy to have guys who are getting called up, you know, getting rings on their last uh, level outside, you know, before they'd make the jump to the majors. Um, but yeah, you're laying that foundation, right? So you want the guys at Orem, you want the guys in the AZL or the GCL or, you know, the New York Penn league, the Appalachian league, the pioneer league, you want their first entrance 
into pro ball to be a good one. Um, so if they, you're talking about this angel system and at Orem, you know, some of these guys were just drafted this year uh, and now they're, they've already got a ring. That's going to set up good things for this offseason. That's going to set up good things for next spring. Uh, you know, when, when some of them go to Burlington next year, uh, that's going to set up good things for that. They, you know, that's going to be good vibes around that club starting there. So, you know, as, as much as we talk about winning throughout the system, you want it at every level, uh, to get it at that lower level, I think, is almost more important than maybe anywhere else. Strike number three, Sam, one of my favorite topics in all the planet, World Baseball Classic time, World Baseball Classic qualifier time in Brooklyn this weekend. Um, first, on a personal note, I made a very dumb travel decision. I'm coming out there next week. I'll get to see Sam, give him a big bear hug, make him very uncomfortable, uh, which is it's what I generally do. Don't, don't lie to <laughs> But I decided I'm going to fly into New York on Tuesday um, and not go there this weekend when I could have gone to MCU Park in Brooklyn and watched these games. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not happy with myself. I don't know what to tell you, man. Dumb. It could have been a great day on Coney Island. I know. You know, watching <sighs> the Israel team face off against Great Britain in a uh, you know could story have got some from Nathan's? the right. Yeah, I know. You should have th- think of the hot dogs. Could have written the. Could have written think the of the non-sandwich hot dogs. I've never even been. Well, since I was like five, I haven't even been to Coney Island. Man, well, I really screwed this up. Anyway, all right. So next March. 16 teams will take the field sporting the colors of their nations to contest for the World Baseball Classic crown in the tournament's fourth incarnation. It's one of my favorite things on the planet. I've been to every WBC semifinal and championship game to this point. I'm as big a World Baseball Classic nerd as you will find. Um, But this final qualifier is maybe the most intriguing in the grouping of teams. And we're going to talk about some of the prospects who are on these teams. And as we noted, we will talk with one of the prospects who will be on one of these teams. Team Brazil's Bo Bichette will join us here in a little bit. But among the four teams left in qualifying play, they'll square off this weekend at MCU Park, home of the Class A short season Brooklyn Cyclones on Coney Island. Brazil, Israel, Great Britain, and Pakistan. Um, And Pakistan is the team that stands out to me as being the most fascinating. Because since the WBC started in 2006 the conversation has always been well it's the rules of getting players on rosters and it's not the same as for the olympics and yada yada pakistan is different in that you don't have players anthony rizzo for example played for uh the italian national team back in i believe that was in 2013 actually that he played for italy um and so the rule for the world baseball classic is if you are eligible to apply for citizenship to a country through your bloodlines, uh, then you are eligible to play for that country. Um, With the Olympic Games, you have to be a passport holder of said country, which also has come up with its own rash of issues. Back in 2004, when the Athens Games were held, there aren't many baseball players in the nation of Greece. So basically just expedited a lot of passports uh, for American baseball players with Greek heritage. But the WBC, the rules are a little bit more lax to fill out some of these rosters. Uh, But Pakistan does not fit that mold. Pakistan does not have a single player born or raised in the United States. They're bringing over their entire roster from Pakistan. They still had five players as of yesterday 
who hadn't even landed yet because of visa issues. And they basically hit the ground running coming up against Brazil this weekend. Israel and Pakistan will get started. Um, Sunday is the championship game, which will be at 6 Eastern time. By the way, all these games will be streamed on MLB.com. But there's a lot of really cool storylines that go into this and a lot of really interesting prospects who play on these teams as well. I kind of want to continue on that Pakistan note. Um, There was a great New York Times story that came out this week. Uh, And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the team is coming straight from Pakistan. This is not like a bunch of minor leaguers who are around anyways and are just coming up to Brooklyn in mass. They're all flying from Pakistan itself. Um, No American-born players on that team. A lot of them grew up playing cricket, which makes sense. Uh, You know, in that story, the manager talks about how they have a couple guys who can throw around 90 um, you know, which, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago sounded impressive. Now 90 is kind of an average fastball, which, you know, I guess Pakistan being what it is, you know, to find somebody who can throw an average fastball is still pretty good. But, um, you know, what fascinates me is there just aren't baseball fields out there. You know, these are guys who are practicing on cricket fields, on, you know, rugby fields, on, uh, I think what was mentioned was there are two baseball diamonds at the U.S. Embassy, and that's how a lot of these guys were practicing before they got here. But playing on artificial turf, which is what they use you know, here in Brooklyn, this is the first time they've ever played on that. And you talk to minor leaguers, and it takes a while to get used to that. Now they're playing on that in kind of high-pressure games. I mean, these are games that determine whether these guys get to go on to the big stage that is the World Baseball Classic. Uh, so that'll be fascinating just to see how those guys kind of take it there. Uh, the team I, I'm really, really intrigued by as well um, from a guys I know standpoint is Israel. Uh, just because, you know, as you mentioned, Tyler, anybody who is eligible for citizenship, you don't have to have the passport. You don't have to officially be a citizen. Right. If you are just eligible for citizenship. You are able to be a part of that country's team. So... There's a lot of guys on this team, on this team Israel team that you will recognize: Ike Davis, uh, Nate Fryman, Ty Kelly, Zach Borenstein, who is a, a prospect in the D-backs and Angel system. You know, from years ago. Craig Breslow is there. Uh, Jason Marquis is there. Those are two guys with lots of major league experience. Uh, you know, Ryan Lavarnway, Meyer League. I, I, I won't. I probably catch flack from him if he ever hears this. I don't want to say minor league star, uh, minor league social media star, Cody Decker, who spent this year at double a Portland in the Red Sox system. Uh, there's just a lot of names here that you, if you've ever followed the minors the last couple of years, you'll recognize. And so these are guys who, who know the game. They, they may have played in Brooklyn before actually. Um, so out of all the rosters that are kind of strung together, you know, this might have the most talent. The problem is, a lot of these guys are kind of on the older side or they're quad a players or, you know, if they were in the majors right now, they would still be playing. They wouldn't be going to play for team Israel. Um, so these are not to call people scraps, but these are just kind of the, the guys they could string together. Um, obviously all Jewish. Uh, that's how they're eligible to play for team Israel. Um, but it's just fascinating. That would be a, a really interesting team to see, you know, how these kind of quad a guys could do up against, a team like the Dominican Republic or Japan or Korea, uh, you know, come come next spring in the WBC. But um, yeah, those those are the kind of the two teams I'm following. Uh, but what do you kind of have your eye on, Tyler? I know you're much deeper into the WBC action than I am. Into the nerdery. 
It's going to be a lot of fun watching all of these. No, I mean that really is kind of my level of interest in the WBC. I I just fell in love with the WBC when it when it came around in 2006 and it's some of the neatest sporting events that I've been to. The 2009 semis and championship game at Dodger Stadium were maybe the coolest baseball environment I've ever been a part of. The Japan Korea game there was one of the best baseball environments I've ever seen uh anywhere, not just a game that I've uh, attended. Um I'm interested to see how the the Great Britain national team does. There are current and former prospects on that team as well. Uh, a name that probably sticks out to uh, people who have been following the minor leaguers um, in all capacities in recent seasons is uh, Antoine Richardson, who is from the Bahamas and will get to play uh, for the the British national team. Uh, spent some time up with the Yankees, 13 games back in 2014. He's played 22 big league games over the course of his career. But Antoine Richardson has been all over the minors in recent seasons. Uh, this past year, he spent some time with Oklahoma City in the Dodgers system and Indianapolis in the Pirates system. But he's been with the Rangers. He's been with the Yankees. He's been with the Twins and the Orioles. Um, so he is there. And a lot of guys who, you know, didn't really get much of a cup of coffee at the professional level, but at least were there. I mean, Barry Enright is a name you've heard of. Uh, Chris Brissett is on that team. And then there are names that you probably recognize from, oh, yeah, I think I recognize seeing that in a box score at one time or another over the last few years. But that's a team that has a lot of stability in its coaching ranks, um, which I find really interesting because, you know, for uh, a team like uh, Brazil, there are pillars of that national organization in baseball that have just sort of come on over the last few years but for the the great britain club uh the coaching staff has been involved with that team for quite some time um so there are sort of avenues that i think that team feels more comfortable and more familiar uh with itself as an organization maybe than some of these other teams so maybe they can make a little bit of noise um but i think talent wise and um you know big game ability wise Brazil is probably the team that you look at to come out of this group. Uh, but Israel came within an extra innings loss of advancing to the 2013 tournament. They lost to Spain in the 2012 qualifiers in extra innings. Um, so they're a, a talented team and a team with a lot of prospects, a lot of guys who have seen a lot of minor league time. Um, but this is going to be fun. I mean, this is it's one of the neatest events, I think, in sports. Uh, and not just for what it provides for those of us who get to watch it, but for guys like Bo Bichette who get to play in such a neat baseball atmosphere that you don't get playing in just a regular minor league season for these kids coming over from Pakistan the the managers the coaches the players who have never played on a real baseball field outside of the American embassy the U.S. embassy over there has two baseball fields and that's basically it for people who have played on real baseball fields in Pakistan it's pretty much those two facilities now you come over you got the roller coaster you got the big lights you're playing in New York City this is awesome for those guys it's just such a cool event I love it yeah, and one thing I kind of want to touch on, too, is that, uh, especially coming off the Olympics, we, te- we tend to make these sports that involve nations, um, you know, we make them kind of geopolitical, right? We want to say, like, oh, what is it going to be like with Israel fl- right. facing Britain? Is this a memory of, you know, something that happened in the middle of the century, whatever? And one thing I found really interesting was the Pakistan coach talking about, you know, You've got Pakistan, which is mostly a Muslim nation, and Israel, which is, you know, almost entirely a Jewish nation. Um, and there's some clashing there. What it what this is going to be this weekend is just a tournament in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, you know, it's going to be a really fun atmosphere to see these guys get on a field and play ball and try to win games. 
And to try to uh, assign, you know, oh, someone's, you know, Cody Decker is facing, playing for the entire nation of Israel right now. And what he's doing, it's it's not that. It, it's, you know, just a group of guys who have a common background, whether it's, you know, their grandparents came from this country, they were born in this country, whatever it was. Um, that's what this is about. And um, so, you know, if is Israel plays Pakistan this weekend, um, don't expect it to be some rivalry. Look, look for the light in the situation and not the darkness that right. um, some might assume would be there. Syed Fakhar Shah, who is the manager of the Pakistan team, said, quote, there are really just two countries in the world founded on religion, Pakistan and Israel. We're trying to keep this low. For us, it's a game and we feel positive about it. Major League Baseball is doing a good thing bringing countries together. Uh, Israel's manager is Jerry Weinstein, who's a coach in the Rockies organization, and he said, quote, I'm the most apolitical person in the world. Playing Pakistan for me would be no different than managing in the Cal League or any other game. Both those quotes given in the New York Times. Um, but yeah, it is, it's just a way to unite teams that are playing a game against each other and are going to have some fun with it. And uh, by the way, Liam Carroll is the name of the, the Great Britain manager who I was talking uh, ad nauseum about the coaching staff. I don't think I ever actually dropped Liam Carroll's name, but Liam Carroll's the manager has been there for quite some time with Great Britain. Um, and Barry Larkin obviously is, is piloting that Brazilian team. So going to be a fun weekend nerding out on the WBC and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it as that tournament closes or this final leg of the qualifying stage of this tournament closes uh, for next week and uh, get you set for what else we've got coming up this off season, which is the Arizona fall league and things to come. But before we get to all of that, we are going to talk a little bit more about this WBC with one of the top talents on that Brazilian national team squad, Toronto Blue Jays prospect, the number 12 ranked prospect in all the Toronto organization, Bo Bichette, son of a former Major League All-Star and the brother of a fellow uh, very highly ranked prospect, at least at the start of his career, Dante Bichette Jr., who has seen some time at uh, the AA level most recently for the New York Yankees organization with the Trenton Thunder. Bo Bichette will join the show to talk about the WBC qualifier and his start to his professional career in the Blue Jay system next. As promised, we are headed to Brooklyn. It's World Baseball Classic qualifier time, the fourth and final of four WBC qualifiers in 2016 ahead of the 2017 Worldwide Tournament. And we are joined by the Brazilian national team infielder Bo Bichette, who is the 12th-ranked prospect in the Toronto Blue Jays organization and a member of Team Brazil for the 2016 WBC qualifier. Bo, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. So let's talk about the WBC first. Um, there, You look down this Brazilian national team roster, and there are names that people would probably recognize, baseball fans who know you know, somewhat of the background of players who are from uh, Brazil. Andre Rienzo has been a minor league prospect for a long time, seen some time in the big leagues. Leonardo Reginato is on that team, also a Brazilian-born player. But then you're scanning down, and you see, wait a minute, Bo and Dante Bichette. Um, you know, this is something that not a lot of people would understand the process of how this came about. I mean, you guys, Floridian. Uh, Bo was drafted in the second round of this year's draft by the Blue Jays. Dante's been in the Yankees system for a while. How did this come about that you guys got the opportunity to play for Brazil? Um, well, when we saw them four years ago in the World Baseball Classic, you know, they did a really good job qualifying, beating Panama. Um, and then they played well against some good teams. I think they played Japan and Cuba. You know, they competed. And so four years ago, we were really excited. You know, like, hey, in, in four years, maybe we can try and make the team um, – and this year we completely forgot until kind of like the last second, but uh, we got on the team and we're able to be on the team because my mom was born in Porto Lagedi in Brazil. And so I guess that 
that that qualifies us. So did you guys, I mean, when you were kids, did you have much of a connection? Did you travel down there? Is your mom's family still there? What's what's your background? Um, so my grandparents just moved like a few years ago to to uh, the USA. Um, me and my brother have never been over there, but, you know, we plan to go there soon and visit. Um, my mom has like cousins and uncles and aunts still living there, so... And I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this because uh, I found your mom's Instagram, and I'm sure that's what every son loves to hear. Uh, yeah. But but she said, "Thankful my parents always told me to keep my birth certificate handy." And then she has the Brazil flag, and I think it's a picture of you uh, behind the Brazil flag in the Brooklyn dugout. Um, so was that was there like some mad chase to find her birth? Like what what went into that? And like you said, how did you guys? You said it was last minute. So how did that process yeah. kind of come together? Well, I just I asked my agent to see if he could look into it, and um, you know, last second they said, "Hey, Brazil wants to wants to try and get you on the roster. Can you send us you know everything you have?" And he gave us a list, you know. And I think there's something going on in Brazil right now where um, they can't get you papers and stuff when you need it, and so that's what mom was saying. You know, thank God I kept my birth certificate and didn't have to go try and find it. Yeah. been kind of a complicated last few months politically in Brazil, but um, I mean, this is a team that probably not a ton of people realize or remember. I mean, Brazil had a very talented team. The 2013 WBC played very, very well. They finished 0 and three, but really kept games close. Brazil lost a game to Japan five, three, they lost to Cuba five, two. So it's a team that certainly has experienced some success already. The WBC, Um, but this roster, looks different from 2013 you guys get into new york have a little bit of a mini camp you've been working out in brooklyn it's such a quick process to get right in and form a team uh but what has it been like for you guys as a group kind of figuring out what what everybody's like and what this roster will be like this weekend yeah it's been really fun the you know the players welcome me and my brother in um pretty seamlessly and they are crazy man they have like a great a great connection with each other it's a great team atmosphere and it's been a lot of fun and just kind of for you personally uh you're an infielder you know you got a lot of time at shortstop this year in the gcl a little bit of time at second base your manager with brazil is hall of famer barry larkin uh i know it's been a short amount of time but what are you able to pick up from him and what are you trying to pick his brain about you know in this time that you have with him uh, over the weekend? Well, everything. I mean, you know, the ultimate goal is to say at shortstop or even in the middle of the field. And so when I came here, I knew I was going to try and pick his brain as much as I could. Um, and he's been awesome. You know, he's been encouraging and, and uh, helped me a lot on a ton of different things defensively and, and in, in the mindset of, of the game too. So he's been awesome. <laughs> Bo, you've got your brother there, too, and uh, Dante obviously has had a little bit more experience at the professional level being the older brother, and to not only have him there uh, for this tournament, but to have him there as somebody that you're able to bounce stuff off of um, you know, throughout your professional career so far. We've asked this about a lot of prospects who we've had on the show who have had brothers who have traveled that road before them, but what's that relationship been like to you since you got into pro ball this summer, um, You know, having somebody in Dante, and it's obviously having your father, too, but played in a much different era in terms of the minor league game but being able to have those guys to go to when you got questions about the professional life or whatever it is yeah well me and my brother are best friends so i've pretty much went through everything with him anything he's you know been successful at or or struggled at and 
I mean, it's honestly, it couldn't have worked out better for me, you know, to be able to see the ups and downs in the minor leagues, you know, the struggle that you go through. I mean, getting to your hotel at 4 a.m. or and then having to play that day and stuff like that. So, I mean, learning from him and, and how to take care of yourself in the minor league season has been huge for me. And what's been the one thing that's kind of surprised you? I mean, it's like in any situation, you people can tell you what it's going to be like, but you're not going to know until you get there. Uh, what's been the one surprising thing about pro ball so far? You know, it's only been a couple of months, but uh, what would you say that would be? Um, well, I guess it would be like, so I was in rookie ball this year and, and we played every day, obviously. And, and in the GCL, we play at 12 PM you know, in the scorching sun and all that. But I would say the biggest surprise was in the lower levels, how much you practice every day, even though you have a game, you know, and like in high school, you don't practice before a game, that type of thing. So that's been surprising for me. All right. And and I kind of want to go over this GCL season for you. Um, You know, just looking at the numbers, it was kind of an insane season. You were named a GCL end of season all-star. You hit 427 over pretty good games yeah that's pretty good good over any stretch uh yeah what what was this season kind of like because i know you got off to a really hot start and then you know end of july you had to undergo an appendectomy i think um you know what was it like getting off to that hot start and then having your season kind of just put on hold like that yeah well i mean it was obviously a good feeling for me to to start your you know professional's career off like that gives you a lot of confidence but um i actually didn't have an appendectomy i know there's a lot of people saying that i did but i actually didn't um i had appendicitis and my appendix burst which is not a good thing no not at all um yeah it's not a good thing um but somehow my body absorbed the appendix and absorbed any type of infection that would have affected me and so i kind of just like gave myself surgery i guess and and, wow! Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, that sounds like some future ro- uh, with those numbers, and then that. Are you sure you're not a robot? I Bo, feel like you, that's the question I have part, to ask. Are you part earthworm here? Like, if we cut off your arm, would you grow another one? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I got a ton of nicknames. I was asked if I was an alien. People were calling me Chuck Norris. That kind of thing. So. <laughs> So let me. So walk us through this process then. So you've got uh, appendicitis, which I've heard is one of the most painful things that a human being can undergo. Really, um, you get to you know. Did you go to the ER and then a few days later they say, uh, you know, we we took an X ray and it appears that you just devoured your own appendix. What happened here? Well, it was bothering me for a while. Like I was playing through it. Um, and and one day it was bothering me, you know, quite a bit, and it just wouldn't go away. So I, you know, asked if I go see the doctor. Went to see the doctor, and the doctor told me it was probably a virus and that it would go away soon. Um, so I go back and I play a few more games, and I think like three games after that doctor's visit, I said, "Hey guys, I just can't do this anymore. It hurts too bad." So I went to the ER, and the ER, you know, said it's your appendicitis, and you go to the emergency room. And so you know. And the rest of history told me it's burst, and <laughs> I was fine. <laughs> I <don't know>. That <laughs> is yeah. amazing. That yeah. is really amazing. <laughs> All right, so just kind of going back to then when you were on the field and you were you know hitting close to 400 for part of the year, and then you breached that number. Um, you know, how were you able to hit the ground running like that? I mean, a, a lot of guys your age, your teenagers, you're coming off facing high school pitching. 
you know, you have the showcase circuits, all that kind of stuff. So you face some of that there. But, um, you know, what it to put it kind of simply, what made it look so easy for you out there? Um, I don't know. I just I just worried about preparing every day, um, working hard, that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, I played well. I guess I don't know. I guess I was seeing the ball really well. Um, I definitely don't expect to put up those kind of numbers the rest of my career, but um, you know, I just I just prepare really hard. I take pride in preparing harder than anybody that I know. So I guess all of that goes into it. Bo, to have had the season cut short then, and um, you know, obviously the physical recovery that comes along with that, you are going to get a lot of extra at bats this weekend, getting a chance to play for for Brazil, and it's something that not a lot of players have the opportunity to do to play in these qualifiers, and especially to do it at this time of year, um, to do it after the season is over. How valuable is that for you to get on the field, get a few games in, against some high quality competition, and be able to ride those into the off season? Yeah, well, I'm excited. Um... I really just love playing baseball, so that's that's fun. But, you know, right after this, I actually go to Instructional League. So, I mean, I was going to get my bets anyways, but I'm just excited that I get to do it in this type of environment. And have they given you any indication, uh, you know, what your playing time is going to be like on this Brazil team? I, I mean, you, you've gone through the workouts. We haven't seen any of them yet. But, you know, are you going to be starting games at shortstop? Are you starting second? What What has Barry Larkin told you about the plan? Um, you know, I'm, I don't know exactly what's going to go on, but, uh, you know, I guess it's up to him. I'm not going to say I should start or anything like that, or if I think I am, but I've been at shortstop pretty much the entire time, a little bit of second base and practices. So, um, I guess if I, it seems like if I don't start, that's where I'll come in if I play at shortstop. Yeah. And, And just this one last one to let you go. Um, you know, when this tournament, of qualifiers is over when instructs is over uh you know when you're going back home probably working out with brother dante what's going to kind of be your point of emphasis you know going into next year your first full season uh you know probably starting at class a lansing you know what what are you going to be trying to work on specifically uh to improve your game and kind of build on what you've already done this year yeah um you know i just want to get stronger in all phases um get in better shape like every off season, uh, get stronger, get faster, get my arm better, everything, you know, uh, it's just a nonstop grind to get better, I guess, your entire career. So that's my plan. He is Bo Bichette, the 12th-ranked prospect in the Toronto Blue Jays organization and an infielder on the Brazilian national team for the final qualifier of the WBC's 2016 slate 2017 tournament coming up in Brazil, which is very much uh, one of the favorite teams in this last group of qualifiers can make it on through. Uh, they will play once more coming up in the 2017 tournament, which will be March of next year all around the globe. And, Bo, um, congratulations on uh, on being selected for the tournament. Enjoy every minute of it because, obviously, a pretty unique experience and something really cool and uh, and best of luck when you get to instructs. Okay, thank you for having me, guys. Off-season news and headlines are cooking hot and cooking fresh. Is I think it's a phrase. <laughs> wow. Is that a phrase? Let's make that a phrase. Why not? Cooking hot, cooking hot, cooking fresh. fresh. This and is ben why you failed out of advertising school. The chef is on to discuss all of it. Hi, Ben. Hey, yeah, I am the master chef, the master slicing chef. and dicing, <laughs> chopping and flopping, sautéing. Yeah, say what rhymes with chopping? I was gonna say chopping and dropping. I was like, that doesn't yeah. make sense. I could work. 
I don't know. Maybe it doesn't doesn't make any less sense than what I said to start. I'll tie in and fillet in these uh, prime minor league news stories. <laughs> well, let's get started. Um, it is minor league affiliation change time, and this is always one of the most confusing times of the minor league calendar for the casual minor league baseball fan. Um, we've already had a lot of teams that have switched affiliations uh, with player development contracts that have been up. Obviously we had the two teams contracted from the California league. That will mean two additions to the Carolina league. We will talk about one of those teams coming up here in a little bit, but we've already had uh, a handful of teams that have changed hands already. And just to give you a snippet, of what some of these changes look like, let's take the AA Southern League, for example. The Jackson Generals, who just won a Southern League championship with the Seattle Mariners organization, will in 2017 be an Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate. The Mobile Bay Bears, the former Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate, will now be a Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim affiliate. And the Angels' old AA affiliate, which was in the Texas League, is the new Mariners affiliate. There's like a three-way dance going on there. But this goes on all across the minor leagues, and it's one of the most, if you're somebody who doesn't pay a ton of attention to minor league baseball or what it means, um, or even if you're somebody who's just starting to, this is kind of one of those confusing times of the year. What does it mean for the team? What does it mean for the players? What does it mean for the coaches? It is a confusing time of year, but I think it's important to note in all the confusion that, one, with 160 teams, the vast majority stay in the situation in which they have been. They stay affiliated with the same minor league team. Uh, or with the same major league organization. Um, and that's in some cases because the major league team owns the minor league team, and in a lot of cases it's just because it's a relationship that working that's working. And every time that this uh, time of year comes around, every two years at the conclusion of an even-numbered season, you know, you make a lot of relationship analogies. You know, like there's the long, happy marriages, you know, you're – you know, Redding, Fighting Phils, and the Philadelphia Phillies who've been affiliated since 1967. And then you have the uneasy relationships where you kind of assume it's because at least one party doesn't want to be there, but they don't have a better option. Um, you know, maybe Las Vegas is usually an example of that with them usually teams not wanting to have their AAA affiliate in Las Vegas. Right now the Mets are in Vegas and they've re-upped for another two years. Um, you know, sometimes it's the proverbial last call at the bar and there's two people left, and they're the ones who just kind of have to couple up and uh, join together for a little while. So um, it is like a relationship, but a relationship between a major and minor league team. And uh, the, the player development contracts, which you know we usually just call PDCs, they are for two or four years, and those are what govern affiliations. And uh, once they're up for expiration, then you can look elsewhere if, if that's what you want to do, or in most cases, the parties involved renew them. And uh, the professional baseball agreement, the PBA, between major and minor league baseball um, calls for a set number of PDCs, you know, 160 right now, um, which is what has created, you know, long-term stability in minor league baseball, that there's this many guaranteed affiliations throughout minor league baseball. And uh, that will be the case through at least 2020, and that brings up a, a whole lot of new other issues that we'll talk about in a few years, I'm sure. But um, here, here we are in PDC season, and uh, some significant changes, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. The landscape is still... Uh, more similar than not heading into 2017. And one of the things to keep in mind, for people to keep in mind, uh, when an affiliation does move, so let's take these players who were on the the AA Jackson Generals who were Seattle Mariners prospects. 
those players don't really have a connection to Jackson. Jackson was just kind of where they were assigned. It's the office to which their company assigned them. Let's put it that way. So they've basically just been transferred to the Arkansas branch next year. That's kind of how it works with players and coaches, player development staff, that sort of thing. Because that's often a question is, well, what does that mean for the players? So are all the players now, are they going to be Diamondbacks players going into next year? No, it's not how it works. The affiliation is what moves. So the front office staff will stay the same. So Jackson's sales staff, their broadcast team, their promotions group, they'll all stay there where the players move on to the new affiliation. So it's a separate couple of separate entities, the business side and the on-field side. Yeah, absolutely. If you're to use Jackson as this continuing example, if you are a fan of the Jackson Generals and you go to a game in 2017, you will see go, be going to the same stadium, seeing the same front office staff, seeing teams in the same uniforms. It just happens to be that those players are now affiliates of the Arizona Diamondbacks and not the Mariners. It doesn't really change the fan experience or what the atmosphere at the stadium is like. It is uh, just uh, it's inside baseball, if you will. And um, just take us through kind of what all the movement that goes on in Class A advanced here. Actually, before we get to that, I, there was some follow-up I wanted on this, which was you, you mentioned that it's a PDC, it's a player development contract. And so how much of it is, you know, an agreement or how much of this disagreement between sides can be on the minor league side and the major league side. I think a lot of people, when they hear, Oh, an affiliation is moving, it's because the major league team wanted it. Uh, but how much can a minor league team play into that? It's both. It's, it's very much a two way street. Uh, minor league teams. I think the, the, the number one thing they want, um, the number one thing that both parties want, if possible, is proximity to one another. On the major league side, that means you can move your players with promotions and demotions um, you know, with much more efficiency if you have your minor league teams clustered together and if that clustering is ideally around the, the major league club itself. And minor league teams, of course, want to be um, an affiliate of the closest major league team because that increases fan interest. And that's why, in most cases, the longest running affiliations are with between major and minor league teams that are close to one another. You know, I used Reading as an example. The people who live in Reading, Pennsylvania are Phillies fans, so it makes sense for them to be a Phillies affiliate because there is that much more interest for, on a fan level in Reading in that, hey, we saw Ryan Howard, we saw Jimmy Rollins, we saw, you know, going back decades, Greg Luzinski and Mike Schmidt. Um, so it makes a lot of sense there. And uh, some minor league teams more than others want to be affiliated with a major league organization that has a commitment to winning. Um, that has a proven track record of winning at the minor league level. Uh, for some minor league teams, that's important. Others, not so much. They're just more fixated on the fan experience. And again, like a relationship, you kind of want to be paid attention to. And I've definitely talked to minor league uh, employees through the years who will say, like, oh, well, we are an affiliate of this team, you know, and the GM, you know, visited us once in four years. You kind of want to feel like you're part of a larger structure or an organization that cares about you and values you. Um, on the major league side, yes, they want minor league teams that are uh, that have geographical uh, proximity, of course, um, but they also are looking for good facilities, and that's usually the main thing that causes a major league team to want to move. If they say, "Oh, well, we're in this, you know, market for our double A team, and we're in this stadium, but coming up the end of the year, this one, which you know has indoor batting cages and much bigger clubhouse and locker rooms and a better weight room and what have you." 
um, they might try to make that switch. And that's very much a consideration when building new stadiums is, of course, it's going to have all the fan amenities, and that's what people are going to notice and talk about. But it's pretty much a guarantee that new stadiums are going to have a good player amenities as well because that makes them most desirable um, for the Major League affiliate and gives them the best pick of potential Major League affiliates because people will want to be with them. And, and just to, to go back to what I was originally going to ask until I came up with a better uh, question that I wanted more immediately. But, uh, yeah, how, talk a little bit about how all this realignment in the California League, uh, you know, California League sending two teams over to the Carolina League and how that's kind of working and how, you know, affiliation changes is, is going to play into that as well. Yeah, the Class A advanced level is easily the most uh, confusing right now. Um, of and the one with the most movement um, of of any minor league level, you know, Class A um, advanced level being uh, California, Carolina, and Florida State leagues. Um, so two teams in the Carol in the California league are no longer going to exist: the Bakersfield Blaze and the High Desert Maver- Mavericks. Two teams in the Carolina league are going to be added. One we know is in Kinston, and they will be known as the Down East something or others. There's a name the team contest. We can we can talk yeah, about we'll down talk the line about that in a little bit. And that's fairly straightforward. The High Desert Mavericks, who no longer exist, were a Rangers affiliate. Now there's a new team in the Carolina League, and that team is owned by the Rangers. And um, the Kinston, Down East, what have yous, will be a Rangers affiliate. So you can pretty easily say, okay, the Rangers had High Desert as their Class A affiliate, Class A advanced affiliate. High Desert's no more. And now that Class A advanced affiliate is one of the new teams in the Carolina League in Kinston. It's more complicated with Bakersfield because they no longer see they, they they will no longer exist, but they were a Mariners affiliate. The Mariners, meanwhile, are now a Modesto affiliate. But the team, the new team in the Carolina League that's essentially replacing the Bakersfield Blaze will most likely be an Astros affiliate and most likely play in Fayetteville, but they still need to get their stadium together. Um, and assuming that the new team in the Carolina League is an Astros affiliate, that means Lancaster in the California League, which had been an Astros affiliate, is now looking for a new affiliate. So it gets really yeah. confusing. Everything I just said made sense, and I've been trying. <laughs> I've been writing an article about it and trying to uh, be as um, as concise and informative as I can. And even hearing myself talk, I'm like, this is just so much to keep track of. And I think the key is for any fan who wants to really pay attention to this. And Sam and I were talking about this before we started. Uh, got on the air with you, Tyler is to look at each thing as a separate move, as a separate thing. Say, I'm interested in this team. Here's what they're doing. Okay, got it. And then move to the next. Because when you combine everything, well, this is happening, which means this is happening, which means there's an opening here, and there's an opening here, and this might happen over here. You can talk and be factual, but just get very confusing very, very quickly. So at the Class A advanced level, um, we don't exactly know what the second new Carolina League team, where they will be and who they will be affiliated with. It's almost almost certainly the Astros, but that still has some things we need to figure out. Um, we need to figure out who's going to be affiliated with the Lancaster Jethawks now that it's almost certainly not the Astros. Um, the new team that had been Brevard County Manatees that is now playing in Kissimmee, that is going to be a Braves affiliate. So now we need to find out who will play in Zebulon, North Carolina, where the Braves previously had been, et cetera, et cetera. Still a few more uh, dominoes to fall at the, at the class, class A advanced level. 
Well, let's talk about one of those teams. Uh, as Ben mentioned, the team that will take up residence in historic Ranger Stadium in Kinston, North Carolina, will not be known as the Kinston team name. They will be known as the Down East team name, which actually caused a bit of consternation in Kinston this week because um, something that I did not know, Down East actually refers to a part of the state in North Carolina of which Kinston is not a part. It's a part uh, further southeast on the coast in Down East. There was an editorial in the Kinston Free Press uh, that pointed that out. But in addition to that, these are the five team name possibilities, and it seems like it's a weekly thing for us that we go over possible new team names for a franchise to see the rebranding or deciding if they want to rebrand or a new team. Uh, these are the five. Eagles, which is a very historic name that's tied to Kinston's first uh, professional baseball team. Hamhawks, which is both a barbecue reference and also an aviation reference. Kind of an interesting one we'll come back to. Hogzilla's also a barbecue thing. Shaggers, which is a reference to the Carolina Shag, which is the official dance of, I know, South Carolina, maybe North Carolina too. And the uh, and the Wood Ducks. And all of those teams will be preceded by the geographic moniker Down East. Um, I understand from the the marketing standpoint, wanting to draw from a regional fan base. But I think there were a lot of very valid issues raised in this Kinston Free Press editorial earlier this week of the movement to get baseball back in Kinston has been a Kinston movement. It hasn't been a regional movement. So does it surprise you, Ben, that this has turned into now, um, which obviously seems to be something that's uh, been conjured by the Texas Rangers organization. They've been the big push behind uh, obviously buying a franchise, getting it to Kinston. Um, But to name it something geographic when it's... It seemed like Kinston was really the the linchpin of this whole thing. Does that surprise you? In a word, um, no. Um, I think uh, like the the Kinston editorial you mentioned and any uh, you know consternation which you referenced, I think they are valid points because it wasn't the down east region of North Carolina that pushed to return minor league baseball to right. the region. Um, as you said, it was very much Kinston, which has an old stadium in Granger, which has decades of history of hosting baseball, which kept that stadium in shape to host uh, minor league baseball, which you know did the legwork to, to, to agree to a lease with the Rangers. And uh, I, I understand... You know, no, this is about us. You know, we're Kinston and, uh, you know, our city government made this work and us, the fans, have a long history of supporting baseball in this town. And now to be represented by a region of the state that we don't even consider ourselves a part of. You know, I think if I lived in that area, I would probably be insulted. But if you look at it from a marketing standpoint, Kinston is one of the absolute smallest markets in all of full season minor league baseball. The town itself has a population of I'm I'm not sure if it's even hitting 20,000 people. And so when you have a class A advanced franchise and you're trying to draw from much more than just um, you know, Kinston, North Carolina, here's Sam's looking it up, 21,677 people in the 2010 census, you do want a name that's going to speak and reach out and grab people beyond this small town. And uh, I, I understand it from a marketing perspective of how can we draw not just from Kinston in the immediate area, but go deeper into the region and go, yes, further down east, you know, past where Kinston actually is in the state. Um, so I think I understand it from that perspective. They want to capture an audience uh, via the name that maybe just using Kinston would not have done. And kind of go over some of these names for us now, then, you know, between the Eagles, Ham Hawks, Hogzillas. Shaggers, Wood Ducks. You know, we won't do the thing we do every week and say which is your favorite because you know, it's going to be impossible to figure that out. And we, 
which is going to be picked here. But how did it, do you think these group or this group of names kind of compares to some of the other ones we've seen in Staten Island, Binghamton, New Orleans, so on and so forth? I think, and, and you guys can say if you disagree, but I think it's very much of a piece with what we've seen throughout this um, off-season rebranding uh, efforts, what we've seen in um, New Orleans, what we've seen in Binghamton, um, what we almost saw in Lynchburg be- be- before they decided to stay with the Hillcats, uh, what we're seeing in uh, Florida in the team in uh, K- Kissimmee. Kissimmee. I always want to say that I've name I've always wrong. said Kissimmee. Yeah, but Kissimmee. I, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, if Floridians want to write in and tell us exactly how to pronounce it, we're, we're welcome to that. Yes, so we don't please. Have this problem. Yes, don't please worry. do. Because every time I say that name, I, I have this bout of uh, uh, anxiety that I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> anyway, I feel like what we have here in Down East for the team that we're we'll playing in Kinston, I feel like we very much have um, something that is of a piece with 21st century or, or the last five years, especially of minor league baseball history. Um, there is one, you know, conservative historical choice in the Eagles. Um, you know, throwing a bone to the traditionalists. We have not seen those uh, traditional names get selected much at all. Um, so it, I, th- I think we are learning as much as it does create outrage among big segments of the fan base, as much as a lot of people say, you know, fire your marketing team. And I say this again and again, I feel like I'm a broken record, but we see the irreverence and the goofiness of these names uh, again and again, because it ultimately works. And often a lot of the outrage is from people who have not seen it work elsewhere because they live where they do. And then they don't know that, you know, that the similar thing played out in Richmond and in Akron and Pensacola and in Lehigh Valley and ultimately worked with the irreverent name and how much that name ties into the larger branding experience of the stadium and the whole fan experience and not just the name on the jersey. So I think it's always one of those give it time type of situations. But yeah. Outside of Eagles, when you have Hamhawks, Hogzillas, Shaggers, Wood Ducks, uh, it's a pretty quirky bunch. I can see how people say, like, man, you're first of all, you're not even representing uh, the city that we're actually playing in, and now there's this uh, collection of names that is just downright silly. So they're going to have to get over that, but you know, it's the 21st century minor league baseball rebranding playbook. The controversy is good in a way because it gets people talking about your franchise at a time of the year when most regions are 100% focused on football and its variations, you know, high school, college, pro, uh, to be talking about minor league baseball as September turns to October is a feat in and of itself. And a story just up today on uh, on the Kinston Free Press's site that uh, renovations have already begun at Granger Stadium. They'll be building a new concession stand. They're repainting the stadium, updating field lighting, putting pads on the outfield walls, um, which is something that they did not have for a long time. It was just brick walls in the outfield. So I'm sure a lot of Carolina League outfielders will be pumped to see that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is certainly the talk of the town in Kinston and in the uh, Lenore County region and uh, and maybe even down east. Who knows? It could be. All yeah, the same. it's going to be talk of the state, yeah. talk of the talk of the nation, really. Exactly, it's happening. Um, the Kinston Blanks or the Down East Blanks, a team that will uh, take the field in 2017, and it's amazing how quickly focus turns to 2017 because basically, as soon as you get done with the season, if you're a minor league front office staff member, you take a week, you kind of lick your wounds, clean up the office, do whatever, and then all of a sudden, it's promo seminar time, and promo seminar is coming up next week already. It is, you know, I I wish I had several more weeks to lick my wounds i'd be wound licking for a long time here we are (laughs) on the way to birmingham for the promo seminar uh i'll be there next week when i talk to you guys next week and do this segment it will be remote from some uh who knows from some 
remote hotel, ballroom, convention center location somewhere in Birmingham. I've been going to the promo seminar. First one I attended, I think, was back in uh, – well, I can tell you it was 2008 because I remember watching in my hotel room the uh, NLDS game between the Brewers and Phillies in which uh, Brett Myers. Wow, does that feel like a while ago? Yeah. I was just going to say, man, what yeah. was the last time you said that sentence about a National League postseason? Yeah, yeah, the Brewers and the Phillies. But remember, I was like, Brett Myers worked that. Was it a walk off of CC Sabathia? Yeah, it's, that does sound right. Yeah, I remember That's watching that. Brewers, CC Sabathia. Yeah, so I've been going since uh, way back in, in, that, in that, that era. I was a young man then. And uh, so what the promo seminar is, for those who don't know, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know, because it's an industry event. It's not really something that's geared to the larger populace. I feel like I'm probably the only person who's ever written about it for any audience whatsoever, as small as that audience may be sometimes. But the premise of the promo seminar, for years, the tagline has been, uh, one idea is worth worth the price of admission. And basically, it's under the premise of, Minor league teams do not compete with one another. They all operate within their specific territory, their specific region, their locale. So therefore, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats or what have you. And um, the seminar takes place right after the season so that teams with the recently concluded season fresh on their mind can share ideas throughout the course of three days and, um, you know, hopefully give their peers ideas to take back with them. And uh, you can definitely see the effect of the promo seminar in the next season's uh, promo schedule, uh, be it you know celebrity guests or uh, certain theme nights that might work. Um, one year, it was a couple years ago that Lowell uh, talked glowingly of how they did uh, military trading cards, in which the trading card sets they gave away were of local military members that and fans had submitted the pictures and the bios, and a lot of teams picked up on that and uh, the next year there was probably a dozen of those and now they become a tradition among you know markets all over the country so when you do start to see a promo proliferate in minor league baseball if you're the such a type of person who uh, pays attention to such things the reason may be because that idea was shared at the promo seminar and so it does have a ripple effect you know throughout the course of the next season and seasons to come in terms of what the fan experience is at the ballpark. So there are a lot of large, you know, ballroom presentations of which I, I give one of those, um, sort of an overview of my travels. But then there's also a lot of small group sessions where people who work in different aspects of minor league baseball, you know, media relations or community relations or various executives or what have you, uh, they can break into smaller groups and talk about issues that really affect their specific job. And uh, so there's a lot of networking, a lot of talking, uh, you know, a lot of drinking. You know, this is an industry that, um, you know, people know each other because there's so much movement in minor league baseball that, you know, if you if you really devote yourself to a career in minor league baseball, you're going to end up at a bunch of locales. You're going to meet so many people along the way. And the promo seminar and the winter meetings are really the only time that this industry gets together in one place. So it's a very collegial atmosphere. Um, you know, you see people that you communicate with throughout the year, incidentally here and there, but it's really a time to, you know, reestablish relationships as well. And that's one of the reasons I like to go, maybe not so much for what I end up writing about at the seminar, but for learning about what the teams have done with their seasons, for getting ideas for future stories, um, and also to have, uh, my ego, uh, pumped up a little bit because I start to feel like, no, no one reads my stuff in the off season. And then I get around a bunch of people who know who I am and I feel like a celebrity for a few days. So thank you. It's a good way to be. Yeah. A quasi celebrity. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's Benjamin Hill. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz there and the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com as well. And good stuff coming up from the promo seminar. And uh, again, continuing to roll through the, the last, I shouldn't say the last because it'll probably be going on for a little while, but the, the <laughs> remainder of the content from uh, all the road trips this year. Yeah, don't sleep on the blog, please. Um, I, I, I'm still just doing full reports from all the places I visited. As much as I've written articles and short blog posts and had a social media presence from all these different places I visited, on the blog right now I have full report, reports. Right now the, the most recent is from Bluefield. So we're going back two months ago when I was in the Appy League. But I feel like this stuff is timeless. It is evergreen. And uh, do me a favor and go to Ben's Biz blog. Google Ben's Biz, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Check it out. Let me know you're reading. Uh, I, I do think it's worthwhile and fun stuff. I'd like to think, and uh, it doesn't really matter when it comes out. It's it's baseball, and it's the minor league fan experience. And not only those things, but go to milbstore.com and get yourself a Ben's Biz t-shirt as well. I'll do it, and let me know like if you that. buy one. I think we've hit double digits in sales, so uh, you know this is a train that cannot be stopped. It is rolling across the nation. I, by the way, just uh, the other day went to the uh, went to the store site and realized that we now sell um, like classic merchandise. We even sell some Ebbetsfield flannel stuff on our site, the Wait, MILB right? hometown collection. Yeah, you can get a Portland Mavericks cap. You can get a uh, San Francisco Seals cap, a Kansas City Blues cap. If you're a Wichita Wranglers fan, we've got 5950s of the Wranglers logo, the Madison Hatters. There's some good stuff up there. Let's not detract from the main point no, you're trying to the make. Main point please buy a Ben's Biz t-shirt <laughs> at the Mill Team store. You Thank know you. what else is, is on there, which I may actually purchase one day? There's a Cape Fear Crocs shirt. Uh, I might get that one. That one's worth talking Just about. Just because we can forever sing the song when we engage in purchasing t-shirts of random, now long-defunct teams. Go get yourself a Ben's Biz shirt. That's what matters. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Final segment of episode number 77 of the show before the show podcast. Uh, before we get out of here, because we do not have any MILB TV games to direct you to, obviously, what we do have the ability to direct you to is a story from NPR affiliate WBUR in Boston titled, quote, when a burst appendix doesn't kill you. As soon as Sam and I hung up with <laughs> Bo Bichette, we were like, wait a minute, I've never heard of this. What is the explanation here? Um, basically, some backstory. I think this is the first and probably the only time that we've uh, referenced NPR on the podcast. But uh, just to give you some backstory, WBUR News Director Martha Little, uh, this is back in 2012, she too, like Bo Bichette, contracted appendicitis. And she too just thought like, well, this is annoying. Uh, she thought it was food poisoning for a while and thought it was just some abdominal pain. Gets into a doctor who says, yeah, you should go to an emergency room. There is, quote, something cooking around your appendix, which is not anything I ever want to hear from a doctor. No. She goes to the hospital. They say to her that she could wait eight weeks for surgery. Her response is eight weeks. What would happen if the appendix burst? And their response is it is already burst. So apparently what happens is, according to this story, uh, the body has the ability in certain cases to, quote, wall off the perforated appendix so that the infection doesn't spread. So apparently, Bobachette, like, are these uh, are these superhumans? Like, is Bobachette, should we see if, like, he can fly and things? Uh, or, or equally as impressive, if he could be the news director at a public radio station? Yeah. That, that could also work. I mean, he did really well in the interview. Yeah, so he did. He's a very bright kid. He's, he's passing on uh, the radio genes for sure. Um, 
Well, we know he can hit baseballs really well. Yeah. I mean, he's already made it to a point of baseball that very few do. Right. So, well, you know, kind of watch this space, I guess. Yeah. Because Bo, the things we have learned today about Bo Bichette. Good baseball player. Very eye-opening. Maybe uh, Art Cyborg. Yeah, and, and I'm glad he was able to kind of clear the record on that because I, I had read, as he mentioned, you know, people have called it uh, an appendectomy, but that's not what happened here. It was something much scarier. Um, and that has been this week's uh, <laughs> medical, medical watch. <laughs> yeah, medical watch in the minors. Tune in next week where we hopefully find some interviewer. Minor perfect... watch. Oh. My... No. I'm sorry. Don't, I, don't force it. I didn't mean Just it. Don't um yeah hopefully next week we don't have some terrifying breaking injury news on the podcast that was amazing that I, I never want to have to fact check something like that ever again that absolutely blew my mind uh Bo Bichette you can find on twitter he is at Bo knows 1919 and um yeah that'll just about wrap up the uh, 77th edition of the show before the show podcast uh from milb.com but even though you cannot watch minor league games on MILB TV this week, you can tune into WBC qualifier games from Brooklyn coming up this weekend on MLB.com and on WorldBaseballClassic.com. So you can find those there. You can watch guys like Bo Bichette and Dante Bichette. Um, and there is some very intriguing stuff like we talked about in that opening segment uh, that's going on this weekend in the WBC's final qualifying tournament for the 2017 um, edition of the competition. So I'm pumped. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I don't know why I didn't fly out four days earlier so I could go to these games, but uh, you know, nobody ever accused me of being smart. So you just have to watch on TV or on, on TV or on your, whatever device you choose, like the rest of us plebeians or mobile device. One of those things. Um, so I guess that'll do it. Big thanks to, uh, to Boba Shit. Big thanks to Kelsey Hannigan for joining us and Benjamin Hill as well. And, uh, next week we'll get y'all set for the Arizona Fall League. Uh, we'll probably recap the WBC qualifiers and we'll, uh, we'll do a whole heck of a lot more as we get rolling into the offseason on the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. We'll talk to you then.